dealing with a movie like mine where you have suspense, you have murder, you have uh, all kinds of erotic things, and you're always walking a very thin line. I grew up in a tough neighborhood. We used to say you can get further with a kind word and a gun than you can with just a kind word. I've had some sexual assistance. Do you want to fuck me? Say hello to my little friend! Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, film fans and cinephiles, to episode one of The Palmcast, a brand new ongoing series from the Epic Film Guys podcast for 2021. I am your host, Justin, and I am joined by literally the only person that would be able to handle this series. Accompanying me is none other than the god of podcasting, the one the only Loy Sauce. Thank you, Justin. Yes, I am the god. I am the undisputed king. Uh, there's no one better than me at podcasting, simply. That is true. That's why I need <laughs> you here to back me up. I mean, this new series is something we're very, very excited about. We sat down, ladies and gentlemen. We're like, ah, we need something to really get us excited for the new year. We need to do something fresh. Something to bring a new flavor to the epic film, guys. And Loisos first recommended us talking about episodes of Teletubbies. And I was like, dude. I'm surprised you didn't go for that idea. <sighs> Maybe on another day, I would have felt differently about it. I'm not well, totally we'll, sure. We'll wait, to hear, we'll wait to hear the feedback from our listeners about that. Yeah, but um, <laughs> we are doing an entire series where we're going to be focusing in on and delving into going in depth with the filmography of director master of suspense, if you will, Brian De Palma, which is a director that both Loisos and I hold in very high regard. And one that we feel really hasn't gotten his due in a lot of ways. I mean, there are a lot of different podcast series on a lot of different directors. We've done many different series on this show and I thought it was a great opportunity for us to sit down and talk about some movies that some movies that I just really feel like don't get the focus they deserve. So this is what we're doing. We hope you're in for the ride. We're really excited about it. So if you're listening right now, if you're new to the show, thank you for listening. And if you're an ongoing, continuous, hardcore epic film guy listener, we love you. Thanks for sticking with us. But before we go any further, I have to be reminded that this episode is fueled by our sponsor, the Evil Tea Company. Steeped in darkness, Evil Tea brings a sharp variety of tea flavors featuring robust and creative blends for all those tea addicts out there. Use our special promo code, EPICFILMGUYS, for 15% off your first order. Please make sure to check out their site at EvilTeaCompany.com to find the blend for you. And Loisos, as we open this first episode, we're going to be talking about one of the, if not the, integral, most important Stephen King adaptations of all time, Brian De Palma's Carrie. 
Seriously, it's, it's, it's one that we had to start with. I mean, is there any better movie to start off this series with? Well, I, Brian De Palma has such an illustrious filmography. I'm sure we could have chosen any one of his movies to kick it off with. But Carrie seems like the most obvious choice because it is it arguably his masterpiece. But I wanted to start off before we begin talking about Carrie, uh, because we have gotten the question, why Brian De Palma? Why are you devoting an entire series to him? And you and you mentioned that we feel that he's a filmmaker that hasn't really gotten his due. But you take a look. I mean, he's one of the original auteurs of American cinema. He's cut from the same cloth as Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg. And he's just as indispensable to the landscape of entertainment as his peers. I mean, look no further than Noah Baumbach's documentary, De Palma, from a few years back, which is little more than a rare sit-down single interview, just going through each of his films one by one, and you see what a phenomenal career he's had. Uh, so the man just turned 80. Uh, we feel that his career has such a you know wealth of material, hits and flops and you know all-time classics like Carrie and some of his more overlooked films. Uh, that would make for an intriguing series. So um, why why not start with you know the the one that really jump started his career? And um, I'm I'm really glad we're starting with Carrie because it's one of the most iconic horror films ever made. I mean that image of the girl in her prom dress covered head to toe in blood is so ingrained in pop culture. And it's in, unforgettable. Absolutely yeah, unforgettable. And in our collective consciousness that even if people haven't read the book or seen the movie, they know the story. And that's a credit to Stephen King and his original novel, but it's even more of a credit to Brian De Palma and the creative choices that he made to immortalize that, you know, that image on film. 100%. And I think, honestly, if I'm really going to answer the question... To our listeners, you know the reason why I wanted to talk about Brian De Palma on this series. Uh, before COVID hit, Voiceos and I were supposed to meet Brian De Palma. We, we were, were supposed, supposed to, to meet him. <laughs> we had tickets. We paid for it. We paid for his new book. Um, our snakes uh, necessary. Yeah, that's correct. We we had paid for the book to get it signed, um, and it was a really big deal for us to go and wait in line and go to New York City together and have a great time meeting him. Um, but he'll sign your book and you'll meet him and they'll talk about the book. But it was a very exciting thing for me because it's very rare to catch a director like this at, at something like a, a book signing and, and be able to hear him speak and, and, and maybe hear him talk about his filmography a little bit. But when that actually, when COVID hit, it was like, all that shit's not happening. Bastard, so bastard COVID. <laughs> that fucking thing that will never go away. We're just going to have to learn to deal with it. We're dealing with it now. We're going to be dealing with it for the next year and a half or two years or maybe forever. Who knows at this point? But I just got my uh, notification that I'm eligible for the vaccine. We'll see how you, long it takes for me to actually get, get it. it. You best get it. You oh, best certainly. get it. Absolutely. Um, but so recently, my birthday in November of last year, Loisos gave me his book signed with a Bic pen. He signed it with a fucking Bic pen. Um, I had, to, I had to suck a few dicks to get that book for you. I'm signed. sure <laughs> you fucking did. And I'm sure they fucking loved it. No, for real, you got that for me for my birthday as a big surprise. Cause we thought that we weren't going to, we weren't going to go, we weren't going to meet him any of that. And then when I saw the book sitting there on my coffee table, as we were watching some schlock movie recently, I was like, <laughs> Yeah, 
a Brian De Palma series. Right. That could be cool. And you so know, you, last you year, came up, you came up with the idea, and I came up with the name. So it's a perfect yes. blending yes. of uh, minds here that birthed this series. So I'm very excited. I really am genuinely very excited for this. But moving along to the the title we're referring to here that we're going to be talking about and dissecting, Carrie, um, I'm that guy. I don't really read books like I used to. I rarely ever do. But you, you just held up a few minutes ago a vintage copy of Carrie, a beautiful vintage copy right there with Sissy Spacek on the cover. Um, you've, You've read the book, so... Before we got into this, like, were you a fan of the book before you saw the movie? Did you see the movie first? Like, what was your first interaction with Carrie? Well, I mean, like, like I said, it, the the image is so ingrained in pop culture that, uh, you know, I, I had seen images of the movie, if not the entire thing, before I started to get into horror movies and uh, horror literature, Stephen King in particular. And so I, I read the book later on. And the book includes details, obviously, that the movie does not include, but I, I just was so struck by how the movie managed to boil it all down in a way that is so efficient and effective. Well, maybe someday on a rainy day, Loisas, if I get bored enough, I'll borrow that there book from your hands and I'll read it. But until then, I've seen this movie a handful of times in my lifetime. And as we usually do on the Epic Film Guys podcast, we talk about our first introduction to the film that we're discussing. And I'm going to be completely straightforward with you. I don't remember the first time that I saw Carrie all the way through start to finish. I just don't remember. Um, I'm pretty sure that TNT was playing it like late night on, you know, one of the Joe Bob Briggs episodes. I saw it on in TV the nineties yeah. or something. Um, and I caught the end scene of it, but this was not one that like came to me from a friend or a family member or anybody else. Like I just found it on my own and it wasn't until my adult years where I really got into it and sat down and dissected it and really wanted to understand this film. But nevertheless, Loisos, if there's anybody listening that's unfamiliar with the story of Carrie, why don't you fill them in on what it's all about? Well, this will be for very few people, but just as a primer, just as a reminder. uh, It is 2021, man. That's right. That's right. So essentially, it's the story of a somewhat gawky high school misfit, uh, Carrie White, who is abused at home by her dementedly devout mother, Margaret, um, and at school by her teasing classmates. But little do they know that Carrie possesses a strange telekinetic power, a shine, if you will, that unleashes a firestorm of revenge upon them when a prank at the senior prom sends her over the edge. And this film, widely considered by many to be in the top five, if not the number one spot for Stephen King film adaptations. Oh, absolutely. So it's crazy to think that we're we're talking about a movie from 1976, over 40 years ago, that still holds that title after hundred over a hundred adaptations of King's work. And this well, is, I believe, is this not Stephen King's first book? It was Stephen King's first published novel. He had written a couple others okay. before, but this was his first published novel. And fittingly, this was the first adaptation of a King work to the screen. So, um, you know, I, I think the reason why that is uh, it, 
why it's still revered as one of the best adaptations of King's work is that um, Carrie, the film, succeeds on three levels. It's a great adaptation of the novel, first and foremost. Um, it, it succeeds on a purely technical level, and it succeeds on an emotional level. And, you know, in many ways... And, and dare I say, not to cut you off, but on an entertainment level as well. Certainly, certainly. So in many ways, you know, De Palma almost seems destined to make movies based on King stories. And it's a shame he never did another after Carrie, because I feel he's a perfect fit because King stories are often these lurid, you know, go for broke melodramatic operas, essentially. And De Palma is first among equals in embracing the melodrama of a piece and using it to his advantage to, you know, heighten the emotion of the film. And there's also the reoccurring theme of in King's books about, you know, the marriage of sex and violence or, um, you know, how often sex and violence coalesce or in the case of Carrie, you know, adolescence and discovering one's sexuality. But, so, I mean, what director captures sex and violence so effortlessly? <laughs> other Nobody than else. Literally right. nobody. Else. De Palma's the king of that. And I mean, the erotic the thriller. Funny- yeah. Of course, you know, Carrie is more of a psychological horror, you know, revenge parable than erotic thriller, but it's still, it perfectly suited to his strengths as a filmmaker. The the funny thing about it is that they didn't want Brian De Palma to make this movie. They literally pushed back like three or four times. Originally, Fox was going to make this movie. They saw the script. They were like, nope, never mind. We're not interested in that. And then United Artists saw the script and they were like, well, we like Brian De Palma. He's really interested in making this. He wants to make this. And then the producer and the writer sat down with him. And then when they heard what he had to say and what he wanted to do with it, they were like, oh, okay. The studio wants him, so we kind of have to go along with this. And when they saw his vision, then they were like, okay, this guy's the right man for the job. Also, they had just seen a cut of Obsession, which he had just finished. And they were like, okay, the guy's visual eye is there. Uh, the score had Bernard Herman in it. They're like, okay, so he's someone that could probably handle this material. This is before Stephen King was like a known huge blockbuster type of name where you would need to pick like, you know, a name of it out of a hat of, of, of big wig directors or up and coming directors that had a name for them to, to choose the project. I, I, yeah. And the first pressing of Carrie didn't even really sell that many copies. It sold maybe a few thousand copies. It wasn't until the second pressing that uh, it, it became a, a million seller and King kind of became, I mean, arguably you could make the argument that uh, the popularity of the movie helped Stephen King's career in the long run and opened the oh, of doors course it did. To, to more of his work being adapted, you know, for, for better or worse. <laughs> you know I, I mean, mean, 100% Loisos. I mean, we're going to get ahead of ourselves a little bit, but the movie cost, 1.8 million overall and grossed 33.8 million yeah. in North America alone. So, I mean, that right there just shows you, <laughs> yep, the King name was all over the place. And of course, with marketing materials, his name was all over all of it. But we have to get into the opening of this movie, which includes a sport that I was terrible at in gym. So I understand why it was so difficult for them to shoot this scene and for all the actors involved to get it right. Volleyball sucks, bro. Seriously. It's like the worst fucking sport ever. Like, who's fucking good at volleyball? Why, why, why are no volleyball professional athletes, like, popular in pop culture and social media? 
It's because the fucking sport sucks and no one likes it. But they're gonna get a lot of mad volleyball players. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying, commenting. literally, like I hated it in gym class, and um, you know, just knowing the behind the scenes of this, it took them forever to get the opening scene of this movie right, where you know Pino Donaggio's beautiful score, which we're gonna get to in a little bit, we have to uh, opens the movie, and we see a class of high school girls playing volleyball, and from there, this is our first indication that Carrie is not liked by her classmates. No, certainly not. Um, and, and, you know, we move from there to the gymnasium locker room of Bates High School. And it's called Bates High School because De Palma can't resist sucking Alfred Hitchcock's dick See, at every I ha- opportunity. I, I had that in my notes, too. <laughs> I had that in my notes, too. So I'm glad that we both noticed that because it's been so long since I've seen the movie. But that's correct, man. And uh, right at the start, we're, we're lost in a veritable forest of bush. That's correct. And <laughs> the funny thing about that, seriously, as I'm about to sip my drink here, Danielle watched this with me. And Danielle wanted me to make clear to our audience. Danielle, your wife. Yes. If you've been listening for a long time, you already know who she is. But she wanted to make this extremely clear to our audience that girls do not really walk around naked and frolic in girls' locker rooms like seen in this movie. She's like, that didn't happen ever. It doesn't happen now. But. Well, it makes for a very. For cinematic purposes, yeah, I understand. And of course, we have the slow-mo, which we see numerous times in the movie, which we'll obviously dissect a little bit further. Well, I think the nudity, too. I mean, quite a few filmmakers wouldn't have the courage to shoot the nudity in such a matter-of-fact way as De Palma does. But, you know, he understands that showing, for lack of a better term, uh, womanly bodies at the very start is essential to the running theme throughout the movie of, you know, budding female adolescence. So you have the slow motion, you have like the tranquil music, the shots of Carrie in the shower, enjoying the warm water. Um, and it all turns on a dime because suddenly we see the blood running down her leg. The music changes, the mood changes. And suddenly, suddenly it's a horror movie. 100%. And um, I've never really seen voice sauce. This is the part for me that's been always difficult to get through. I've never seen bullying portrayed so realistically or seriously in a film before this. I mean, when you look at the timeline from when this was released, particularly involving teenage girls, I mean, plug it up, plug it up. As we see for the first time in Carrie, her having her period, her menstrual cycle, um, the gang of girls just literally ganging up on her. And for me, it's so extremely difficult to watch no matter how many times you've seen it, um, you typically expect this type of behavior from males, but you don't realize that female bullying can be just as extreme. Yeah, just as cruel, for sure. Um, and not only that, but you know, Carrie lose, losing her childhood innocence uh, and discovering her telekinetic powers at pretty much the same moment is a metaphor for womanhood in and of itself, You know, discovering one's own inner power, um, essentially. And, and it is in that scene where the light bulb bursts and it bursts yeah that loss of innocence dude it's always been something so uncomfortable for me to view for obvious reasons and it's a touchy subject now it was a touchy subject especially for the time in 1976 to see that on screen i mean imagine being a female viewer in the theater and seeing something like that most movies didn't handle that kind of subject um and it is a male for me it's definitely meant to be like hitting a sharp a very sharp nerve 
For sure, for sure. Well, Justin, talk about Carrie as a character a little bit, because we see Carrie at school, we see Carrie at home, and how she interacts with her classmates, how she interacts with her, her mother especially. So what about the character of Carrie is so compelling? And what about her relationship to the other characters is compelling for you? Well, she has absolutely zero relationship to any of the other characters at all whatsoever. Um, the one interesting thing about the shower scene was that she played it like getting her period was like getting hit by a Mack truck. That was what Brian De Palma wanted her to do to portray getting her period for the first time. And you understand that she has no connection to anybody else. She has no best friend. She has no one that's there to care about her. She is absolutely by herself. She is hidden from everybody else. No one pays attention to her. I mean, dude, literally when this happens and the gym teacher is concerned, brings her to the principal's office, the school staff, they keep giving her the wrong name. They keep calling her Cassie White. They don't even know who this student is. She's like invisible to everybody. She is the quintessential loser in so many respects to everybody around her. She's in her own little world because she's confined because of the way she's being brought up and society pushing her into that little hole there. Yeah. So as far as a character at this point in the movie, we don't really know much about her other than that. She's kind of hidden away from everybody else. Yeah. I mean, Carrie, Carrie's arc is fascinating because this is what happens when the human spirit is just completely broken down by the circumstances that surround them. And I think the film does a great job of outlining Carrie's circumstances very clearly. You know, she's caught between two worlds at, you know, complete opposite sides of the spectrum, both of which reject her. So, you know, at home, she has an oppressive mother, you know, a, a cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, <laughs> religious fanatic, which is a Stephen King staple. In a lot of his work, you see these crazy religious nuts. Um, you know, Margaret, you know, she constantly shames Carrie. She denounces everything she does as sinful. She even locks her in a cupboard to pray for forgiveness. So she has that. And then at school, Carrie's a subject of torment from what Margaret would call the godless. You know, not only her classmates, but 99% of the teachers as well. So... I, you know, I'd compare her upbringing to, to Harry Potter's in a way, except Harry went off to school and had a wonderful time with his new friends. And Carrie isn't afforded that luxury because the system fails her. So, it, you know, it's unfair, it's cruel, and that's where the tragedy derives from. And I mentioned earlier, like, the melodrama of the piece feels very operatic. Um, and that's just what Carrie is. You know, it's a Greek tragedy. It's like the Theban plays or William Shakespeare. You know, the, the story itself is very classic almost you know prototypical but the, you know the emotions conveyed are of like an extremely ingrained primal nature so so like the great melodramas it feels timeless because the emotions are laid so bare i honestly when i rewatched this movie boy sauce i thought they may have retitled it the art of smacking someone in the face <laughs> so because many did you smacks. notice how many fucking times the people get smacked in the fucking face in this movie. I counted like 15 times. Seriously, dude. Every, like a shot every time. New drinking game. Did, did De Palma have like a, a, a thing in place where he's like every 15 minutes, like in a traditional slasher, every 15 minutes someone needs to get killed. In this movie, he just 
every 15 minutes someone needs to get smacked in the face because well that's drama justin soap opera drama bro but seriously though i mean she she goes home she she needs empathy she needs someone to understand and all her mother can do is smack her in the face over and over again while she's on her knees there's zero forgiveness um and and that's what really leads me to the relationship they have together with with carrie and her mom it's it's a non-existent relationship if you will it's literally just bible verses being thrown at her one can only imagine what her life was like as a young child and growing up into this yeah and not even accurate bible verses (laughs) to be clear (laughs) i think that's part of the humor of the character i I think because piper laurie uh, who's amazing and was nominated for Academy Award for this, but but she she literally was just like fuck it, I'm gonna ham it up like a drag queen, and I, I and I wonder if if was this intentional humor or is it melodrama? You know what I mean? Well, I mean, here's the thing: when Piper first got the script, she read it seriously, and then she took a step back and was like, "No, this is a satire." She's wrong, but, but, but she plays the character a tad on the over the top side. However, it fits perfectly within the world for a portrayal of a 1970s religious nut. Now, if you look in the world of religious nuts in the seventies and eighties, this is a perfect representation. I mean, Lois, I'll say, have you ever talked to a person so deluded by their own delusions where they'll act like an insane person? Yes. Just I last to... night, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> They're fucking nuts, bro. So she's she's playing it perfectly. But I mean, to get into her performance a little bit and to get into the casting of the movie and the nitty gritty a little bit. But we, we have to get to Sissy Spacek because before we go any further, I mean, she is the centerpiece of this movie. George Lucas and Brian De Palma were casting both Carrie and Star Wars at the same exact time. So Brian said to George, hey, why don't we do our casting calls together and see thousands of young actors? So these actors were going into the audition at the same time to audition for both Carrie and Star Wars. There couldn't be two completely different things more opposed to each other than Star Wars and Carrie. (laughs) And... So all these people went in for both of these roles, yeah. You, which we could, William we could Ka- elaborate on more. William Cat, Red for Luke Skywalker. Red for Luke Skywalker. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the lead actresses in this film almost got Princess Leia and did not. But Brian De Palma originally wanted someone else for the Carrie role. He absolutely had no interest at all in Sissy Spacek. Um, Spacek called him and told him that she had double booked a commercial. And De Palma basically said, I'm interested in someone else. Go do the commercial on the day of her audition for this film. She decided to say, fuck the commercial and audition for the movie instead. And when she came in for her actual audition, boy sauce, she turned around De Palma's mind 100%. She blew everybody the fuck away. Now, she had known Brian from dating the production designer on Brian's previous film, a film you're a very big fan of, Phantom of the Paradise, which we will definitely be talking about in this series. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if she was still dating him on the production of Carrie, but that's what led her into Brian De Palma's hand. And when he saw her, he saw someone that could play vulnerable, could play scary, could be intense. 
And up until that point, all Sissy had done is like a couple of small roles. She had done some music. She was trying to be a professional recording artist. And she was in commercials. And then she was nominated for Best Actress for Carrie. Yeah, it's an utterly haunting performance. You know, she portrays both the kind of wounded childlike waif and the vengeful wild-eyed monster seen at the climax. And that's not easy, you know, and Carrie herself to start out, you know, she is an innocent, she is a victim, but SpaceX never portrays her as pathetic because there's always this underlying like inner strength simmering underneath the whole time. Yeah. Never. You, you always care about her. Yeah. You always can relate to her. And I think, I mean, dude, six Academy Award nominations, one win later on for Coal Miner's Daughter, my mom's favorite movie of all time. Oh, really? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm big Loretta Lynn fan. I actually went to Loretta Lynn's house, um, saw it. That's who she won for playing. But um, but this is the role she'll always be remembered for. Yeah, of course. And Piper Lawyer. Hold on, fuck. Piper Lawyer. <laughs> Sorry. Piper, I hardly know her. And Piper Laurie getting a Best Supporting Actress nod for the role, also a three-time Oscar nominee. I mean, you have some powerhouse hitters in this movie. For sure. And and even the supporting cast, even the, the bit players, I guess you could say, um, went on to become recognizable names. You have Edie McClurg and PJ Souls in there as, as uh, Carrie's classmates. Edie McClurg, of course, Grace from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the greatest film ever made. And PJ Souls from what film, Justin? Uh, I've never heard of it. I don't know. <laughs> I just know it's something that's totally awesome. <laughs> totally awesome. Totally. Um, totally. I mean, this movie's the reason why PJ got cast in Halloween. But I mean, make no mistake, we got to talk about Nancy Allen, who is a cult movie icon. I mean, we'll be talking about her later on a in lot. the series. For sure. She plays sexy, mean girl, bright and cheery equally. Um, but also the first entry for a film for none other than the man that a year later would be a huge box office star in Saturday Night Fever, followed by the year after with Lois House's favorite movie ever, Grease. <sighs> Great cast in the movie. So it's, it's very difficult to, to really, I mean... Think about the cast in 1976. I mean, you had all these talents on your hands. I'm sure Brian De Palma had a field day with this cast. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Nancy Allen, who went on who went on to become De Palma's wife for a time, right? I'm not sure he'd prefer I speak about that. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Sorry, Mr. De Palma, if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> which I know you are. <laughs> Um, but yeah, well, she, I mean, she's well cast you know. as Chris, you know, the, the archetypal queen bee. Um, there's a tiny bit more depth to her in the novel. Uh, she comes from an abusive household, her father. Uh, but in the movie, nope, she's just a bitch and, you know, manipulative to boot. The way she convinces her boyfriend, uh, Billy, played by John Travolta, to be a pawn in her scheme by blowjob. I mean, that's that's diabolical. I mean, it's one of my favorite scenes ever because she's like, I hate Carrie while I'm she's suck your <laughs> dick. 
bro. And then she sucks his dick. Then he's like, oh, I'll do whatever you want. I'll go kill a pig and I'll go drain its blood and I'm going to go pour it on some bitch. Is it possible for a piece of shit, abusive teenager to be likable? I think John Travolta makes that possible. He just has effortless charm in this. Well, well, he, he does. And going back to what I said earlier, this movie should literally be called The Art of Smacking Someone. <laughs> Dude, he smacks her and she still sucks his cock like a second later. Literally, like he wallops her and she turns around with the biggest smile. She puts lipstick on and she's like, I just want you to to do this thing to this chick at school. The, the poster children for an abusive relationship. No, for real. I mean, like, it shocks me that he played this role. I mean, he's very good in the role. He plays an asshole very well. And then he went on to, like, huge superstardom with Saturday Night Fever and Grease. Grease. And then he made perfect with Jamie Lee Curtis. (laughs) But, I mean... um, His career kind of went downhill after that. But I think back then, smacking someone wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, dude, seriously... The the gym teacher walks up to Nancy in the movie, smacks her for real. Corporal punishment, yeah. Wouldn't wouldn't fly in twenty twenty one. She smacked her twenty fucking times for real, like real hits. Brian De Palma was like, no, hit her real for real harder. And I'm like, I can tell when I'm watching the movie that it's real. That would never happen. Now they would CGI the fucking smack. <laughs> Green They'd screen. CGI the hand hitting the face. <laughs> It would never happen now. Yeah, and and that brings us to to Betty Buckley as as Miss Collins, the gym teacher who literally, apart from Sue, is the only character to show Carrie any sort of sympathy at all. And she definitely brings a warmth to the role, fittingly, you know, as Miss Collins is meant to be somewhat of a surrogate mother figure to Carrie, you know. So obviously De Palma assembled amazing talent in front of the camera, but he also assembled great talent behind it as well. Um, and I think perhaps better than any other filmmaker, De Palma understands the importance of the visual language of film, you know, through through just the way he places or moves the camera. You learn information about the characters and the setting and the action without a single word of dialogue needed. For example, there's the scene in which the teacher reads Tommy's poem aloud to the class. There's a great deep focus shot of Tommy's right. Tommy's face tight in the foreground and Carrie sitting at her desk in the background. What and an she, angle, man. You hear when she says it's beautiful. Yeah, it it's just that. And just with that shot, we get to see Carrie's reaction to the poem and Tommy's reaction to Carrie's reaction without shifting perspective. It's amazing. It, it's totally in focus on both characters. Usually you would see one character reaction and then you would see the other yeah, but like a rock focus. Case, you yeah. see both at the same exact time. Yeah, definitely. And there, there's moments like that throughout the film um, that, that just show real technical prowess in terms of conveying information through the way the characters are arranged in the frame, through lighting. I mean, there's the scene later on when Billy is slaughtering the pig, uh, and his, the shadow of him raising and swinging the axe can be seen on Chris's face. So we don't see the pig get killed, but we feel the impact of it. And I may be getting ahead of myself here. I know we'll be talking about it, but the whole prom sequence is just a masterclass in how to shoot, light, and edit a fucking scene. Brian De Palma went through rigorous, extreme rehearsal and storyboard setup to get ready for the prom scene. 
to get it exactly right. Brian De Palma had a very strong vision for what he wanted to do in this scene. The first thing that I can think of, Loisos, is that this is right out of the Hitchcock playbook. You show the audience the bomb, in this case, the bucket of blood, on the rafters to engage suspense of the audience. Yeah, and again, it's all about the way that it's conveyed, too, because there's this brilliant tracking shot where we follow the girl collecting the ballots from one student to the other. She's collecting the ballots. We see her stuffing the ballots. We see the camera rise up overhead to an overhead view of the stage with the rig with the rope and the bucket. And then we pan to an overhead view of the gym. And it's at that moment when Carrie's announced as prom queen and we see her approach the stage all from that one perfectly orchestrated, perfectly timed, fluid camera movement. It's perfect. And you, by the way, that one perfectly fluid camera movement took an entire day to do. I, I imagine they had to do multiple takes. I mean, it's it's extremely intricate. Yeah, and, and rightly so. I mean, that's the expertise that went into making this. But And then from there, we know what happens. splash <laughs> Rewatching it tonight when i saw the bucket up there my heart fucking raced i was on the edge of my seat yeah definitely and of course when it happens too when the bucket falls and carries drenched in blood it's made even more effective by the fact that the sound cuts completely out the music stops all you hear it's silent yeah, the, you, yeah you can see that characters are they start to laugh they're chattering among amongst themselves um but all you can hear is the creaking of the rope and the blood dripping down it's so and and brilliant. then and then you hear they're all gonna laugh at you they're all gonna laugh at you and then that builds and builds and builds and builds absolutely so um and that scene thematically ties back to i mean that's the only other time in the rest of the movie that we've seen blood other than the opening scene in the opening scene when carrie gets her period that's kind of her first foray into womanhood when she's drenched in blood at the prom that's her her journey is complete basically she has become a woman and of course, that's when she snaps <laughs> and she can no longer control herself. Right, right. And and it's at that moment where we get a brilliantly orchestrated sequence in which there's just all out carnage. She's using her telekinetic powers to electrocute people, to spray them with a with a fire hose. Um, and I love how you can see Carrie controlling everything that happens through her telekinesis in one frame. And in next to it, you see the result of it. And I think that's uh, that's so brilliantly done. I do wish the scene went on for a little bit longer because I love my blood carnage and death. But the way that it is portrayed is so terrifying. I mean, there's this breakout point where Carrie's undone. There's no thought to any of this. It's almost like she's in a trance. Her eyes are just completely frozen open. She is in a trance. Her open, eyes yeah. are completely wide open. And she, at and, this point, she's completely relinquished herself to just... Yeah. But there's no more carry. It's just you've let the rage, if you will, come <laughs> out, be undone. I know why you're laughing, <laughs> goddammit. We'll talk about that piece of shit movie as we wrap up our discussion on this one. But, I mean, no, for real, when you look at it this way, it's, it's, it's everything pent up inside of her that she's held inside her entire life. 
it all just comes out and it's a natural feeling. Yeah, that that brings me to the culmination of the point I was making earlier about Carrie's circumstances. You know, when, when you've been pushed to the brink, the only resort you have is to burn it all down. And to see her exit the gym in slow motion with it burning behind her is it, it's almost triumphant. You know, we've all had moments in our lives where we just wanted to take a match to our abusers and our tormentors in our past and just let it burn. And of course, you know, the, the destruction is horrific. The death is horrific. Yet you kind of revel in the sense of catharsis that Carrie finally got her revenge. Of course you do. Of course you do. You're excited as the audience member. You're like, yeah, get those fuckers. But then Carrie returns home. She's had a really rough night and she needs a little bit of comfort. I She's mean, can you blame her? her sin. She's like, I'm going to take a bath, dude. Right, right, which is, uh, you know, there's symbolism there. But, uh, you know, she she looks to her mother for, for comfort, and instead all she gets is a knife in the back. <laughs> oh, my God, poor and, Carrie. And, dude, as Piper is chasing towards Sissy. Yeah, dude, when the, the camera... knife. Yeah, the camera is looking up from Carrie's per- perspective, because oh, she's on the floor. When Margaret's God. coming after her with the knife, with Piper Laurie has that creepy smile, and it's really chillingly effective. And then we see earlier on it's it's set up that margaret's chopping up carrots with the with the big knife and she has the knife on the counter in, in, in a classic hitchcock shot as well yeah you know with those quick cuts and those close-ups for sure um but it's at this point when carrie sends the knives careening across the room right into her wrists and torso which you know of course the use of the crucifixion imagery brings kind of a dramatic irony to to the character's fate and i believe in the book carrie just kind of stops margaret's heart that's not nearly as that's right epic that's That's not nearly as epic or cinematic a death that would have been boring as fuck dude (laughs) And, and 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 cinematically how would that have presented itself properly to the screen i mean she could have held her chest and fallen down and audience members would have been like really that's it yeah in this case she dies in an almost orgasmic kind of way she's enjoying her death as these blades are flying towards her hands and her body and impaling her, she's shrieking with passion Hmm. and excitement. She's smiling almost like she wants to die. Like she feels she needs redemption for birthing this pure evil, if you will, which isn't really evil at all. It's just misunderstanding. (laughs) And, and when she, dies loisos she clearly resembles the jesus statue that we saw much earlier in the closet in the film she is literally hung like the shape of a cross against the banister inside the house the imagery is i mean it's on the nose but but it's fitting for for the character and it's fit, it, it again way more cinematic and way more thematically meaningful than than just stopping her heart with telekinesis but um we we move on from that scene to the finale or i guess the denouement where um you see sue going to visit carrie's grave and to give it kind of that that dreamlike quality uh they actually shot the scene backwards were you aware of this I was not aware that they shot it backwards. Yeah, actually, if you... That's why you saw that surprising look on my face, because I didn't know they shot it backwards. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's true. And it does kind of give you this uncanny feeling. I was like, okay, what's happening here? And then I will give you, since you're a big fan of a certain slasher film, 
that 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 directly ripped the scene off what happens next <laughs> you got to have the big shock ending got to have the big jump at the end this was the beginning this was the beginning of that last minute jump scare is it not this is like i mean we know that Brian De Palma was heavily influenced by 1973's Deliverance. That ending is literally what he was thinking of when they could not figure out how to end this movie. There were three or four different endings that were proposed, and De Palma hated all of them. And then he came up with this on the spot and was like, yes, we need to have an ending that grabs our audience by the balls or the tits if you're a chick whichever one you are (laughs) and pull you down into the ground and really shock you. And the end of this movie really solidified what was going to create the ending shock scene for the horror genre for so many years to come, maybe 25 to 30 to 35 years. I mean, it became like a known thing that you had to have this kind of shock ending or your movie didn't have a proper ending. You could tease your sequel, which apparently the original book does, Wysos? In a way. It, it, it just hints at the fact that more people have the ability that Carrie has, which of course is what King has called The Shining in his universe. But in this case, De Palma wanted a more definitive ending. These weren't the days of, yeah, let's make a franchise Let's make a movie to set up a sequel and then a sequel after that. And then a sequel after that. He wanted one cohesive piece of cinema and he created it. And I think the ending to this movie is so fucking iconic because every single movie within the genre that came after this ripped off the ending of this movie. And fair enough to say that, I mean, De Palma ripped off deliverance maybe But within the horror genre, it fits so perfectly and audiences were so thrown off by this ending and so surprised and shocked. That's why this is one of the movies. Whenever you see those posts on social media by, you know, any horror page, like what movie could you go back and see back in time that you'd want to see the audience reaction? Which one would it be? Um, This is one of them, because imagine that ending. Yeah, definitely. That music, and, everything's comfortable. You're like, ah, I'm good. I'm about to leave the, the theater. Me and my date are about to go bang in the car in the back of the theater <laughs> and go get some fucking McDonald's or something. And then bam. Nope. Not not after this movie. Nope, you're taking your date home and you're going to have to tell her everything's okay, honey. <laughs> it was just a fucking movie. Yeah. Screams wafting through the halls of the theater lobby. I'm I'm, I'm sure. Um, and and Stephen King tells that story about how he went to see Carrie in a theater, and there were two big burly black dudes in the audience watching the movie. And when that jump scare happened, they leapt three feet in the air and screamed. And that's when King said, "Yep, we got him." <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, he he tells that story as kind of a way to say how effective that final scene was in sticking in people's memory when they think about this film. And the ending of the film is even more downbeat than the novel. In the book, Sue communicates with Carrie via ESP and convinces her that, you know, she wasn't in on the prank. And so as Sue comforts Carrie in her final moments, Carrie forgives her. It's very touching. 
in the movie, there's no forgiveness. There's no reconciliation. Sue's traumatized, you know, no doubt racked with guilt. All of her friends are dead and Carrie haunts her even in her nightmares. That's pretty bleak. And even King admitted that the ending of the movie blew his own ending out of the water. And how many times has he said that since then on movies based on his works? A lot. It's self-effacing, but I believe it here. I mean, the ending of the film is certainly extremely effective. So um, I think as an adaptation, the, the, the movie is a triumph. I mean, like I said earlier, everything that remains in the film exists to serve the main conflict in characters. And any changes that were made, I'm okay with. You know, the little little things here and there due to budget constraints or for the sake of an awesome jump scare ending. Uh, I'm okay with that. Um, others have attempted to adapt King's work, particularly this one. Uh, there, there, yeah. there was a sequel in 1999, The Rage, Carrie 2, which I've never seen. But uh, from all accounts, does little uh, more than yeah. rehash the story. Am I right? Yeah, I've seen it a, a, a bunch of times. and A bunch uh, of times? Uh, well, I, I'm a 90s kid. Oh, you know, okay. I was born in the, the early 80s. And uh, yeah, they should have called it something else. <laughs> Carrie? They should have called it Carrie? Um, there was a made-for-TV movie released in 2002. which 2002, that's right, which, yeah. Which, which is apparently more close to the book, right? Uh, in in some ways, the ending is radically different. Carrie lives in the ending to the 2002 Ooh. version. Yeah, they wanted they wanted to leave it open for a television series or something, so she could kill her classmates on a weekly basis. <laughs> I might watch that. Uh, it it features a pretty good performance by Angela Bettis, but again, it isn't half as effective as the original. And then, of course, there's the 2013 remake starring. Chloe Grace Moretz and Julianne Moore directed by a female director in Kimberly Pierce, which I thought was perfectly fine. Did not hate it. Did not like it. Did not. I mean, there was like really no emotion towards it. It came out. Uh, It had the the same kind of marketing uh, run that every other horror remakes had the same fucking font used for the logo. They put Moretz's face as the poster. And I mean, Go ahead, Lois. So you want to talk about it. I know you have more to say about it than me. I thought it was fine. You obviously disliked it more than I did. Yeah, very, very generic. Um, I, 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 th- I think, I think there could have been a Carrie remake with a really radically, um, charged, you know, um, style to it. Something, something really stylistic and something really edgy and different for the new generation. And instead, they used most of the same dialogue from the original film. They literally credited the original screenwriter of Carrie because they used so much of his script. That's lazy. That's just lazy filmmaking. And um, I, I think I think Chloe is, is fine if a little miscast. She looks like the kind of girl who would be picking on Carrie. Um, and, and Julianne Moore is pretty good. Look at you. Look at you stereotyping people based on how they look. Uh, look, I, I just think she's a little bit miscast in the role. She's supposed to be this. Is it because she's too attractive? Well, she's got those big old lips. She's supposed to be a gawky, awkward high schooler. And I just don't, I don't. But I mean, Sissy Spacek, um, I mean. No, she's beautiful. She is beautiful. She's absolutely gorgeous in Carrie the little things they do to cover her with her wardrobe and like have her hair over her face. She puts that little bit of makeup on in the movie, like seriously, like the tiniest bit. And she's a beautiful woman. Absolutely. Um, 
I guess they didn't I even bother to do that with from. Chloe Grace Moretz in, this, in the remake. It's a different world uh, they're trying to make the remake in, and it obviously was not a success. So things don't translate well when you try to, as you said, just copy and paste. Things don't work that way. Call it something else. Steal the idea, Hollywood. Just call it something else. And people go, oh, that's something new. Cool. I will forever immortalize. Steal the idea, Hollywood. Justin Esquivel. <laughs> that's all they do anyway. I mean, for me, at least, this movie, I have to show so much appreciation for what De Palma did here. He was an up-and-coming director. He hadn't had a hit yet. This was his first big hit. And I think there's another thing that needs to be discussed. Of all the decisions De Palma made, one of the most important was choosing Pino Donaggio as his main composer for the film. De Palma had used previous to this Bernard Herrmann, who is so iconic for his work. I mean, you think about all the stuff he did with Hitchcock and all those other big movies. But he had passed away right before this in 1975 and De Palma just wanted someone that could do that Bernard Herrmann sound and the only real big movie that he had leading up to this was a movie that we're big fans of that you actually booked at Alamo Draft House which is Don't Look Now and De Palma came to choose him based on this perfect marriage of composer and film and the score hits all of the perfect notes, Lysos. He brings out every single emotion. Great suspense, perfect horror music. You feel the yearning for Carrie's character. You understand her based on the music. And when it needs to be vicious and visceral and violent, it's there. You hear those high strings, but everywhere else, it's comforting and relaxing and like a typical teen movie of the time and i think there's something that's so magical and memorable about the marriage of the music of this movie with the imagery that it's infectious and you know this is basically what led to this marriage with brian de palma for later films we're definitely going to be discussing dress to kill blowout body double raising cane snake eyes all the way up until one of his last features 2019's domino i mean he's a composer that almost like john williams of spielberg you think of de palma you think of dinaggio so it's like something that needs to be discussed here i hope to flesh it out in further episodes of the series de palma cast what a fucking movie dude seriously and we have to talk about the legacy of this movie what is it for you well as i said at the top you know it's that image it's that one image of carrie at the prom drenched in blood so iconic uh this movie's been ripped off plenty of times it's been remade plenty of times but nothing compares to the original and you could make the argument that carrie's dated or histrionic or over the top but you know what so are most of stephen king's books and by default they're adaptations um some adaptations fail, like, say, for example, Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> Which you just talked about a few months ago. Go listen to it, because it's a fucking blast, if you will. Uh, but Carrie succeeds, because it's so sharply executed. No matter how you slice it, it's one of the best horror movies ever made. 
is just purely unforgettable cinema. I mean, up until that point and after the fact, nothing hit that hard. Nothing has hit that hard. They sure don't make them like they used to. Ain't that the truth? Well, that's Carrie, everyone. Justin, did you know that there was this Carrie stage musical in the 80s? I did know that because in doing research for this film, I looked up everything Carrie related that I possibly could. But yes, I know that it existed. I know that it failed, unfortunately. <laughs> and they've, tr- they've, they've tried to like um, revive it. Yeah. Yes. Many, many times, which makes sense. Um, I, th- I think that it's very ripe for a new interpretation. I mean, it may not have to be the Carrie that we all know and love from 1976, but I think it'd be interesting to view it through a modern lens, a modern viewpoint and, and see where you could take it. And I think a lot of people, especially those that have been bullied would take great joy in seeing their naysayers, seeing those bullies get burned the fuck alive. <laughs> like they deserve to be in modern fashion. There's so many things you could do, you know? Um, and that's that's what I was getting at earlier with the story feeling classic and timeless, um, you know, but that's for another filmmaker uh, to to decide, you know, in the future. Thank you, Stephen King. And thank you, Brian De Palma. And thank you, everyone, for listening to our first episode of De Palmcast. Sounds so good. I feel like I'm in California sipping on a martini under a palm tree. For real, though, it's not real. We can pretend. It's okay. Just close your eyes, ladies and gentlemen. Put yourself where you want to be. It's a time where we need that more than most. But yes, thank you so, so much for listening to our first episode of DePalmCast. So many more to come. But Lois Austin, if this is our first time, if it's their 500th time... listening to the epic film guys podcast tell them where they can find us absolutely you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts podbean apple spotify and you can find us on social media facebook twitter and instagram at epic film guys and also join our army become a patron at patreon.com slash epic film guys we'd love to have you join our facebook group as well facebook.com slash group slash epic film guys join us in the hopesters dumpster we'd love to have you we would and until next time I know no one's really going to the movies right now but it's a state of mind right it's a state of mind and one day in the future we very well may see you at the The movies. movies yeah 2021 baby